Listen as Drs. Stephen Pipe from the University of Michigan and Nigel Key from the UNC School of Medicine discuss what hemophilia treatment centers need to consider in preparation for the anticipated availability of gene therapy. This podcast is part of a comprehensive educational resource designed by leading experts for the global hemophilia community to help you stay abreast of the evolving science and latest clinical advancements in gene therapy in hemophilia. Visit www.genetherapy.ist.org for more information. Well, this is Steve Pipe from the University of Michigan, and I'm talking again with uh, Dr. Nigel Key from University of North Carolina in uh, Chapel Hill. Nigel, what did it take for you to get a gene therapy trial up and running at your site? And how do you think things will look differently or work differently uh, when and if there's a commercialization of a gene therapy product? Yeah, uh, it's a very interesting question, Steve. So in our preparation for being able to carry out these clinical trials, obviously, um, and I, I would preface it by saying that the rigor expected for clinical trials would be great if it transfers over to clinical administration as well, but inevitably there are some differences. So Bearing that in mind, I think that there's the preparation phase, which much of it is educational. Uh, Some of it is pragmatic in terms of um, the stuff, and we can touch on that in a little bit. But certainly from a preparation phase, I think it goes without saying that the patient needs to go into this with both eyes open and well-informed about um, what gene therapy is. what the risks are, how does it expect it to compare to the therapy that he is on at the moment. And even though presumably formal consent that's required in a gene therapy trial would not be the standard for a licensed product, I think nonetheless, the implications uh, that are inherent in informed consent need to continue to exist thereafter. Um, This is a major quantum leap in terms of therapy for hemophilia and for patients. And I think expectations as well as realizations have to be well realistic. So I think we at least had a significant amount of preparation of the staff. I think that there can be misconceptions also in terms of both nursing and other staff about what gene therapy is, what the risks to them are, Um, We've heard some stories about that in terms of a misunderstanding from providers about what actually is going on um, on the day of infusion. And then the biggest one I think for us was really, at least for an investigational pharmacy, to be able to um, work this into their standard workflow, the investigational pharmacy obviously doing clinical trials is primarily used to dealing with drugs. There are some other gene therapy trials going on here, but the training videos and so on required for the reconstitution of the product and and so on and so forth and um, safety precautions in terms of administration um, were sort of a relatively new thing. So the infusion itself is relatively straightforward. Um, Many centers use a infusion suite. We were using our clinical research unit um, 
just standard monitoring and so on. There have been some issues, and I think we're still got to see the magnitude of the issues related to short-term allergic type phenomena with with these biologicals. Um, and you know, this is certainly a potential risk. But for the most part, the infusion itself, with a few exceptions that have occurred in the clinical trials, are relatively analogous to what would be seen in any infusion suite giving biologicals. There's always some risk related to that. So that was kind of our experience with it. Um, how about yours? How would you say it was different or added to that? Well, our, our steepest uh, curve was getting the first trial open. We spent a lot of time explaining what AAV-based vectors were to our you know, infection control people, and uh, we had to get agreement on what the level of containment was. Uh, we had to sort of reassure the clinical trial unit and then the infusion units about what the risk or lack of risk was for those who are caring for the patients. Um, what we ended up settling for at our clinic is, is we do this in our adult infusion center. Uh, this is our, our hematology infusion center. They're well equipped using chemotherapy agents, but also a number of biologics that are used in, in adult hematology, as you know. And we adopted a, a universal droplet precaution um, just for the infusion itself. And we do it in a private room. Um, so we gown and, and mask um, and glove for, for the infusion. And, uh, and then when it's done, um, the patient um, doesn't have to be maintained in any special precautions. So, but, but that took us a while to get there. And what ended up happening with some of these trials, of course, even within the US, there were multiple sites open for most of these trials, but some centers were up and running early. And because of the competitive enrollment and the desire to get patients dosed as quickly as possible, some centers weren't able to actually get over that initial hurdle. And so our site, uh, amongst a few others, were approached to actually do the dosing at our center and then uh, the patient returned back to their uh, primary center for their extended follow-up. So what we ended up doing, because the active clinical trial, we did a, a second consent at our institution on our IRB-approved consent forms. Um, but then once the infusion and the acute follow-up was, was done, whether that was you know six hours or 24 hours, depending on the trial, and then the patient was able to drive or fly home and be followed the rest of the time. So I think if, if there was more time, I suspect those other sites would have been able to get up and running. But it does highlight for me that, you know again, across the US, we've got 140 treatment centers. Are all of them willing to put in that legwork to get their site ready, if you like, to do gene therapy? And, and I think in the early stages, the answer is almost certainly no. Um, and I suspect the sites that will be doing the commercial gene therapy are likely the ones that had experience in the clinical trials. They've established the protocols and the workflow at their centers. And I think this model of doing dosing at, a, if you want to call it a experience center or a center of excellence, and then having the uh, follow-up at the natural site for that patient. I think that's a model that could work in the commercialization phase. I think most people would be pretty comfortable with that. And perhaps from the payer and the sponsor perspective, 
you know, ensuring that patients have good outcomes, you know, they're going to be highly invested in making sure that the product is delivered to the proper specifications and within the time windows that are important for these products. So I think there's going to be some early motivation to limit the dosing to sites that can pull this off um, efficiently. And then gradually, maybe other sites will be brought on board over time. Yeah, I mean, I think that what you said is is very comprehensive and very sensible in terms of how this could and probably should be done. As far as, you know, the hemophilia center involvement, though, once the patient goes back to them, let's say they've decided not to be a dosing site, but even if, if they have, obviously there will be fairly close contact with the patient in the first um, period of time when the response is being reviewed and liver function tests are being monitored and so on. Um, so probably for the first six, 12 months, I anticipate being fairly frequent contact with the patient. But beyond that, in terms of follow-up of patients, and this probably is a good time to think about both those phases. Um, so do you have any comments about either of those in terms of how you foresee that breaking down? The question is, there may be a patient who's the first, or first time uh, experience for a hemophilia treater who's referred his patient, her patient, let's say for gene therapy to an experienced center, but didn't take part in the gene therapy trials. Um, yeah, I would definitely have concerns about that. I mean, uh, you know, some of the pithy statements that are put out talking about gene therapy, you know, we talk about one and done with this idea that it's a single infusion and that's all you're going to need from that point forward, which is all well and good to present it that way. But um, the other pithy statement that is also not true is this is not a set it and forget it uh, technology, meaning you don't just do the infusion and then that's the last time you have to deal with the patient. To ensure good outcomes following uh, for evidence of uh, the transaminitis for the protocols that include corticosteroids, which essentially are all of them at this point, knowing what the trigger is for that treatment and for how long, um, and then how to follow the patient response um, once they're on corticosteroids. These are all going to be very individualized and I believe will be part of the labels for these products. And so, you know, we've created this infrastructure to monitor these patients in the context of a clinical trial to make sure we get good outcomes. But if you're talking about a regional dosing, you know, if they go back to their primary hemophilia treatment center, if they've never participated in these trials, I think they, they won't necessarily have created that infrastructure to do the follow-up that's necessary to look after these patients post-dosing. So I, I think it's much more likely that my engagement as a dosing center will also include some ongoing discussion with the patient after, or at least with the primary center for that patient, um, until they get through that critical window stage, which, you know, as early as three or four weeks post-dosing to maybe as late as, uh, you know, 16 to 20 weeks or so, that's really a critical window. Um, after they've stabilized, almost certainly they've shed all of their capsids, they've shown that they have a stable uh, factor level, then I think the follow-up becomes uh, much less of a burden on the individual sites. Yeah, I think this is going to have to be 
thought about built in with uh, a manual of procedures on how to do this. I, I think that um, the rule that if anything can happen in Murphy's Law, it will happen. And so I think we need to really be thinking about these patients after the dosing, particularly in that critical period. A long-term follow-up also is something that is, is going to be really critical in these patients. And that's a whole different story. I think that's going to require um, a lot of patient engagement to make sure that that happens. I don't think it's okay to just assume that it's squarely on the shoulders of the, the centers here to do that because um, if patients are in, feeling independent from their centers, I think, and haven't been counseled about the need for long-term follow-up, then we're going to lose a lot of them. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think it's one thing to ask a patient on a clinical trial, you know, participate for a year, but these clinical trials are asking patients really to sign up for five years of follow-up. Well, then what beyond that? Um, I guess when, when a patient moves to my center for their routine hemophilia care, we don't necessarily anticipate that they will be at our center for life, although many of them are. Um, so I, I'm hoping that patients who are have had a history of engagement with the hemophilia treatment center and see that as part of their community of care, that even when they are doing well, hopefully, post-gene therapy transduction, they will still view those HTCs as part of their community of care. And maybe it gets to the point where it's just a once a year, you know, checkup with the center. Maybe it doesn't even have to be face-to-face. -face. I don't know. But a quick check-in to make sure they're still not on prophylaxis. They haven't had bleeding events. No new complications have ensued. Maybe some way to get a follow-up uh, factor level to know that they still got durable expression. I think those can all be worked out over the next few years to ensure that we, we don't lose these patients. Earn your CME credit by clicking the link for credit. Check back for more podcasts on gene therapy and hemophilia. Additional education is available on www.genetherapy.isth.org, an educational resource designed by leading experts for the global hemophilia community to help you stay abreast of the evolving science and latest clinical advancements in gene therapy and hemophilia.